Hello, Rob. Hey, what's up, Mike? How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good, man. Uh, we got a big show today. This is our rock show episode 69. Yeah, good number. Good number. <laughs> Especially in those sexual positions. Yeah, or if you're born in that year, like me. Yeah, but you want to you want to want to order that combo in a Chinese restaurant. That's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not eating much Chinese food these days, anyway. <laughs> you were asking about Wahop. <laughs> yeah, I was asking. I just was wondering if it was open. I think I, I don't. I know the last time they had like a thing outside saying they were closed because of the coronavirus. I don't know if they opened up, but somebody was saying they're open for delivery, for takeout. Or takeout, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right, Mike. So what we got today, we got a very interesting outlaw. Yeah. Outlaw country guy named Merle Haggard. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, maybe some people might might question why we're doing country, but like a lot of country music you can hear in rock and roll, especially early stuff. It was definitely influenced by it. But the outlaw country genre, which is guys like Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, uh, George Jones, Hank Williams, one, two, and three, uh, you know, uh, Waylon Jennings, guys like that, that were kind of on the fringe of, of what country music is. Uh, they took it to different levels. And, and Haggard really, to me, even more than Johnny Cash, is, is an outlaw country guy because he actually spent a lot of time in jail. Oh yeah, he was uh, he was in and out of jail. It was amazing, like how many times he went in and out. And, and and I'm not taking anything away from Cash. I idolize Cash, but the thing is, Cash had this image, and a lot of it was based on just rumor. Okay, you know, people thought that he was in jail because of Folsom Prison Blues and stuff like that. And he did do some short jail time for stupid shit like, you know, pill possession and stuff like that. But, you know. Merle Haggard did some hard time as a kid. He was in San Quentin as a young man. Uh, and, and, and that molded him into what he became as, as an outlaw country performer. You know what's funny? Later on in his career, he sings a song about missing Johnny Cash. Him and I think um, him and um, Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. Yeah, I think. Uh, right, right. Oh, right. do I miss Johnny Cash? <laughs> well, don't we all? You know, I mean, Johnny was was an amazing <laughs> songwriter. I listen to his music all the time still, you know. You want to hear something fascinating about Merle Hagler? He was born April 6th and died April 6th. Yeah, he died on his 79-year-old birthday. Yep, he died on his birthday. That's always sad when that happens, right? Well, yeah, what did he die of? Like um, Pneumonia. Pneumonia, that's what it was. It wasn't emphysema or anything? Cause... Well, he had complications. The, the, the guy had uh, in the... I think in the mid 2000s or late 90s or something, I think the late 90s, he actually had lung cancer and they removed part of his lungs. Oh, shit. Yeah. So he was in a weakened condition. He still performed after that. Okay. Uh, but, you know, and I guess as he got worse and all that, you know, we got pneumonia. Wow. Yeah. All right, so you know, you want to but get you know started? what? Let me one more thing before yeah. we get started. You know what's the other thing? Like he he was he he was he was originally for Oklahoma, but for a guy that lived in California all his life, he really was a really good country singer. Yeah, well, because he he admits that he 
you know, heard stories of his country roots in Oklahoma, even though he wasn't born there, but his parents had moved there during the Great Depression from Oklahoma to, to California. Yeah. And like all parents in that, that generation, they all struggled, struggled to bring home food. Okay. And he and, lived in a weird place in a Santa Fe Railroad, which we're going to yeah. talk about that. That's interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So, like you said, he was born April 6, 1937 in Oildale, California. Now, his parents were James Francis Haggard and Flossie Mae Haggard, okay? Yeah. Originally came from Trekaton, Oklahoma. Now, they moved from there to California in 1934, victims of the, the Great Depression. There was a lot of movement in those days then, people looking for jobs, people looking for better lives than where they were. Uh, Oklahoma was a tough place. You, you know, there wasn't many jobs. Okay. And I think California being probably, uh, a little newer, more or less people out there, there were like more opportunities. And he had heard about a, a job on the Santa Fe railroad he could get. So, uh, James Haggard moved the family out there to the Bakersfield area. They had two children already, uh, Lowell and Lillian. Okay. And they moved into a small apartment in Bakersfield as the father started working at the railroad. There was a woman in the area that actually owned a, a boxcar, a trained boxcar. Okay. And she had suggested to, to James Haggard that he could fix it up and move on to the property and, you know, fix the boxcar up into a house. All right. Now it sounds funny, but I mean, in those days, you know, rent was expensive, just like it is now, except you weren't making any money. This was the Great Depression. So it was like, why not? I'll fix this place up and I can live in there. I'm sure it really didn't cost much to do. So Mike, you want to hit something? You can yeah. still go over there and bake a few and that thing is still standing. Yeah, yeah. And people know that that's where Merle Haggard was born. It's like a weird tour, but the neighborhood is still not good. <laughs> no, well, it's, you know, that. that area i think has changed a lot over the years up and down um but the father did remodel it and they would move in and merle haggard would be born on april 6 1937 in that particular boxcar yeah now sadly in 1945 james haggard would die of a brain hemorrhage and that deeply affected the uh the eight-year-old merle haggard um his mother would have to pick up the slack and she became a bookkeeper and she worked a lot of hours and a lot of times Merle was left to himself. Um, the older brother Lowell was still around. And in 1949, when Merle was about 12 years old, uh, Lowell gave his younger brother a guitar and he loved it. He learned to, he taught himself how to play it by himself. And uh, he was listening to a lot of like country guys like Hank Williams and Lefty Frizzell. Okay, who were very popular at the time. And Bob Wills also. Yes, Bob Wills also, right. Uh, Merle's mother worked a lot, like I said. And, and as that happened, uh, you started to see Merle become more rebellious, more kind of like antisocial in a way. All right. He was kind of like doing his own shit at a young age. And it, it led him to get into trouble. And his mother saw it coming and... She sent him one weekend to a juvenile detention center to kind of set him straight. But it actually probably made him worse. He, he rebelled more after that. Yeah, he was like really out of control, man. He was yeah. getting into trouble a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, by the time he was about 14, he'd been busted for stealing, uh, writing bad checks even, okay, at 14 years old. He got sent to a juvenile detention center in 1950, and when he turned 14, he ran away to Texas with his friend Bob Teague, and they just rode around the state on freight trains and hitchhiked all over the place. And uh, Teague and Haggard in Texas would be put in a juvenile center. But they would escape. And I believe. Yeah, he escaped a few times. Just amazing. Yeah, yeah, good at it. He was good at it. Um, he, they, they, both of them escaped and they hopped a train, I believe, or hitchhiked to Modesto, California. And there he would do work a lot. Uh, he did different odd jobs. He drove a potato truck. He was a short order cook. Uh, but one thing he got interested in is performing. And he debuted with Bob Teague playing guitar. Um, at a place called a Modesto bar called the Fun Center. And he was paid five dollars to, to play on stage, do a couple of songs, and <clears throat> excuse me, and he got free beer. That's like a lot of money, you know, that five bucks Back and then, free beer. Mm-hmm. Back then it was in the fifties. Yeah. Hey, so I'm like, that's a good deal. <laughs> it must have brought in a lot of people. It must have been a rowdy place, you know. Yeah. So um, in 1951, he would return with Teague back to Bakersfield, but he got busted for truancy and petty larceny. Uh, truancy was, in case you don't know, that's when you weren't in school and you were supposed to be in school. Yeah, it's like skipping school. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, do they even have truant officers anymore? Nah, but I remember in Playland, those guys used to come yeah. in there. The guy used to hide me every time. He said, mm, "If your dad knows you're here, he'll kill me." <laughs> I, I, I've been I've been stopped by regular cops, like, "Hey, how come you're not in school?" That kind of shit. I remember that, you know. But not a, they used to be like a specific truant officer. Didn't the little rascals always get busted by him? Yeah, those guys would come into Playland every so often yeah. on a school day. If you were there from ten o'clock, to, they'll they'll take you in. Yeah, they'll bring you to school. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I used to, I remember seeing that. It was funny. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, what happened at that time, even though he was getting into some legal problems, but he got to see uh, Lefty Frizzell play in concert. And at one point, I believe before the show, Lefty actually heard Merle in the audience singing his songs, Lefty's songs. And he was actually impressed. And he, he asked Haggard to sing that night. And he sang with Lefty on stage. And the crowd loved it. And you know, it was at that point that Merle said, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to pursue a musical career. This is what I want to do. But actually, Lefty wanted him to open up for him. Yeah, he was open up for him. But yeah, but the, he actually sang some songs, too. Yeah. You know, and uh, he was he was impressed by him, you know, and, and you listen to Merle. He, he could sing some of that early stuff. He's got a good voice. Yeah. Um, 1957, he had gotten married, but he was broke. And he actually, in, in, a, in a moment of desperation, he tried to rob a, break, a Bakersfield Roadhouse. OK, which is like a bar. Yeah. And what, he got sent to a local jail because of it. Uh, the Bakersfield jail. But he actually tried to escape and got caught and he ended up, they sent him up to San Quentin. Okay. And that's rough. And his, and his wife rough. was also kind of a bitch. She was having a kid with another dude. Right. When he got into San Quentin, he found out that his wife was pregnant with another man's child. 
and that messed him up psychologically. You know, he just couldn't deal with that. Yeah, he was fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Now, he considered this trying to escape from San Quentin, okay? Uh, there was a guy named Rabbit. His nickname was Rabbit that he was friends with in the jail. Yeah. Uh, Rabbit would actually escape, okay? Uh, he would get out. Um, but the friends that he had in jail convinced Merle not to try to do it. And Rabbit went on his own, but he would get caught later, shortly after. And he would be returned back to San Quentin to be executed. Yeah, but you know why? Because he actually got caught, but he killed a cop. Yeah, he killed a cop in the process of, his, of like, I think, getting captured or yeah. got, getting captured. And because uh, it was like, I don't think he was out that long, but then, you know, they got him. And I think he killed a cop on the way back, you know, escaping or uh, not escaping, but them trying to get him, you know? Yeah. Um, so he would be returned and supposed to be executed. Now, also at this time, uh, Merle Haggard had friended this guy named Carol Chessman. Uh, he was a death row inmate and he was in for robbery, kidnapping and rape. There was a time in California law where kidnapping in certain circumstances could be considered a capital offense. Yeah. That's pretty strict. Dude, but that guy was weird. That guy was also an author. He was like a writer. Yeah, Yeah, he wrote books from death row. I believe they're still in print. Okay. And I think he did artwork and stuff like that, too. He was. Do you know any book off the top of the head that he wrote that would be interesting? No, I don't know the titles. I've heard of the guy. I think he wrote about three books. Yeah. Uh, don't know the titles off the top of my name by my head, but his name is Carol C A R Y L Chessman. Yeah, H E S S M A N. Interesting guy. I don't know a lot about him, but I did. I did hear of him before in in time. I heard about him. So he uh, was finally the executor, right? Yeah, he did get executed like a few years after um, Merle would be released. Wow! But was his association with Chessman his friendship? And his friendship with Rabbit, even though Rabbit got executed, that inspired Haggard to change his life around. He knew he, he had to go straight. So he went in jail. He took advantage of the things that you could do in jail. He got a GED. All right. And he was keeping st- a steady job that he had in the jail. Sometimes with him, he couldn't keep a job even in jail because of his actions. Uh, but he's, you know, he was walking the straight and narrow. He kept the job. He was also inspired by Johnny Cash because Cash played San Quentin in 1959. Yeah. He would play play San Quentin more than once. But that was one particular show in 59 when Haggard was there and he saw Cash. Yeah, it was like a New Year's Day. Right. He was totally influenced by him. Um, This would all lead, fortunately, to him being paroled from San Quentin in 1960. Uh, later on in 72, when uh, Ronald Reagan was governor of California, he would get a full pardon of all his crimes. That means he was never a criminal at all. <laughs> nope. Everything was erased. That's, That's awesome. Yeah. Now, when he got out of jail in 60, he started working for his older brother Lowell's electrical contracting company. He was digging ditches for him. Yeah. Okay. But what he would do is start performing. And... He got signed right away to a label called Tally Records. Tally Records was a small label in the Bakersfield area of California. Now, Bakersfield 
in the history of country music is kind of important. Uh, there were a lot of acts out of there because they were kind of like the anti-Nashville sound. And Nashville, which has always been the center of country music yeah. pretty much. Even to uh, today. Even to today, always always was. Um, the sound coming out in the early, early 60s out of Nashville was a little too slick and polished for a lot of country music fans. It was, you know, carrying over into pop music, kind of like where it is now. Okay, you know, like the country artists you hear now are just slick and polished. There's very few that are like singing about, you know, crying into their whiskey and stuff like that. Not, you know, which is yeah, not anymore. <laughs> that, that's the best kind of country music as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, so Baker, the Bakersfield sound was becoming popular. And uh, his first single for Tally Records was a song called Singing My Heart Out. Yep. It had a flip side called Skid Row. Uh, that, uh, that, that record flopped. That single flopped. Um, 200 copies only, I think it sold. Right. I think it was, yeah, it wasn't even, it was limited in production in the making of the records. And it just, it just didn't do that well in the area. Um, there was another Bakersfield sound artist named Wynn Stewart. And in Las Vegas one night, uh, Merle caught him performing uh, a, a particular song called Sing a Sad Song. And he was so moved by it that he actually asked permission of Winston if he could record it. And it was no problem. He actually recorded it. It became his first hit nationally. All right. That was 1964. Uh, he followed it with a bigger hit, a song called My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. And that actually went to the top 10. Uh, that song was written by Liz Anderson and he would, uh, he would work with her on several songs coming down the line from that one. Uh, in 1967, he had his first number one with a song called I'm a Lonesome Fugitive. All right. And he had put a band together called the strangers. So it was Merle Haggard and the strangers. That's pretty good. That was pretty good, man. If you hear the stuff that they did. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, Mike, this so guy pretty much got, once he really got into the music business, he actually had automatic success, you know? He did. Uh, he was very talented, and he was well-respected, and he was driven, all right? Uh, you know, he, his idols were, you know, like I said, like Hank Williams. Hank Williams didn't live that long, but for the time that he performed, he was driven, touring all over the country, writing a lot, and, and, and Merle was doing that. Um with the help of Liz Anderson in the beginning there, uh, and also uh, her husband, Casey Anderson, they wrote some good songs together. Yeah. Um, one thing, though, that Merle was always afraid of early on is that it would come out about his prison time. Okay. Uh, I think people knew about it, some people, but for some reason, it never turned into a controversy. Uh, considering that he actually was in San Quentin only a few years early. That probably just added to his legacy of uh, outlaw, you know? Yeah, some people, yeah. But I could see in those days, too, how that might work against you. In the way the country was then, you know, like they, they wouldn't want your kids listening to that, a guy who was in jail. But Mike, it's know? fucking Mel Haggard. <laughs> we say that now, okay? But, but 60 years ago, it could have went a different way. Oh, yeah. I think it's you funny, know, man, you know? It is, it is. 
And he would, you know, later on, we're going to talk about it. I mean, you know, he would be controversial and, and do shit that, yeah, I'm sure some parents were like, don't listen to this guy. You, but anyway. But the guy was no joke. 38, 38 no. fucking number one hits? Holy shit. How many people has done that in a career? Some of those songs crossed over into the pop charts. It wasn't just country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, not too many people have done that. And uh, he's definitely up there as far as, as that goes. Um, he was married at that time to uh, Bonnie Owens, who was Buck Owens' ex-wife. Yeah. All right. She was his backup singer. Um, in 1967, he had a song called Brandon Man and 1968's Sing Me Back Home. That album and Brandon Man, the album, uh, there was also a, uh, an album called The Legend of Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. And, and these three in a row here, were probably some of his best recordings as far as I'm concerned. What's great about them is uh, they featured his band very predominantly. It wasn't just Merle with his vocals and, you know, his guitar. You know, the, the Telecaster that Roy Nichols played was featured prominently. Uh, Ralph Mooney's steel guitar, his steel pedal guitar, and then the backup harmonies of Bonnie Owens. The productions on those albums are fantastic. Um, That's pretty it, weird it, that you're giving your band such a, you know, you're the singer, but you're giving your band such a feature role. You know, not too many people did that. No, he was, a, I think he was a humble guy. I think, I think that he didn't have any airs about him, that he was stuck up. He, it wasn't all about himself. You know, he was loyal to his band members. He had different band members over the years. Uh, maybe he wasn't the easiest guy to work with at times, but probably... I think he was very humble. Prism, prison made him that way. Yeah, you know he appreciated freedom, which would come out in his songs. Um, and Bonnie was to, also like she had like a, some kind of a solo career too, right? Didn't she? Yeah, I believe she did have several of her own solo albums. I've I've never heard them. I mean, she had a great voice. Yeah, I don't know what sounded like up in front, you know, but in the background, she had a great voice. Yeah, because she was the first female to win the Academy the Academy of Country Music first ever award of a female vocalist after her 1965 debut album, Don't Take yeah. Advantage of Me. Okay, and it was around that time that she was with Merle, okay? And, uh, yeah, it, it I've, I've actually never heard those records. Me either. Uh, you you so think I'm she not, just I'm got popular because maybe... After being with Merle, maybe she took off herself? Well, remember, she was with Buck Owens. Oh, yeah, too. that's right. Yeah, she was married to him first, and he was very big for a while in the early 60s, I think late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, then she you know, divorced him and, and went with Merle. Yeah. Um, and they would get divorced eventually, too. Um, one person I got to mention is a guy named Ken Nelson, and he was the producer of, of a lot of these these records of Merle's in the beginning. He was fucking great. Uh, yeah, and he had a, a, a hands-off uh, policy pretty much with Merle. Let him do whatever he wanted in the studio. He, he, he totally trusted Merle's talent, okay? And a lot of times it was just a matter of miking him right and, and, and recording him simply. And that's all you had to do. He probably also um, time each song and say, cut, let's go to the next one or yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah, probably very easy to work with. Um, at the end of the 60s, he had several number one hits. There was a song called Mama Tried. Great song. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good one. That's been covered by a lot of yeah. people, too. Uh, the Legend of Bonnie and Clyde was another good one. 
Now, he was beginning at this time to attract attention outside of country music circles. Uh, for instance, the Everly Brothers would cover Sing Me Back Home and Mama Tried on their 1968 country rock album called Roots. Yep. All right. Now, you know, uh, the Everly Brothers would delve into country, but they were more like a pop harmony group. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so people, yeah. Now, one guy that was very influenced by Merle was uh, the up and coming star Grant Parsons. OK, and he would do Sing Me Back Home as well. And he would perform it on the Grand Ole Opry. That's huge. He did it live on that, which was huge. Yeah. Uh, that's a guy I like to do a show on soon, too. Yeah. Uh, Grandpa. Interesting cat. Um, 1969, Merle Haggard and the Strangers wrote probably his signature song. And that's called Okie from Muskogee. That's a great fucking song. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's his, one of his most famous. It's not, it's not his most famous. And it's a song about being proud growing up in middle America, uh, being patriotic, um, you know, not afraid to speak. Your don't mind. smoke marijuana. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't smoke marijuana. Right. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of interesting lines in that song and you got to wonder if the song is a little bit satirical as well as serious. Uh, People that are conservative minded love this song because it shits on protesters and hippies. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they, they love that. Okay. And I get it. But interesting enough, um, he, he wrote it. He wrote it from a position of a guy that had lost his freedom and got it back. Okay. Here's a guy who did time in jail. Okay. Off and on juvenile detention homes and San Quentin wrote this song about freedom and coming from him. I think he knows what freedom is because he lost. Of course. And then he got pardoned by Ronald Reagan. Come on. The guy definitely learned his ropes, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and what's interesting is also like it says, it says in the line, if you're from, you know, Muskogee, you don't smoke marijuana. Well, he, and don't he take change, no LSD. <laughs> he, he would change his position on marijuana not long after that. Okay, because Merle Haggard was a was a big proponent of pot in the in the same way that Willie Nelson. Yeah. Is. Okay. Um, his next single after that would be another big hit called "The Fighting Side of Me," and it's another patriotic song where he totally shits on hippies. <laughs> He's just like you know you you know. If you're going to protest, that's fine. But, you know, don't burn the flag. I want to kick your fucking ass if you do that. Okay. And this was around the time, 1970, when he started changing his position on marijuana. Uh, He started to believe it was kind of a a government conspiracy to keep it illegal so they can lock people up and, and, you know, make money off it. All right. And I I believe there's some truth to that. at that time, he didn't want to release that song as a single, okay? Uh, at least not yet. He had another song in mind that he wanted to do, and it was a song called Irma Jackson. And it's a great song. It, it, it's a song about a white guy who's professing his love for a black woman. Yep. Now, in, in the early 70s, that was controversial. And the record company... Um, basically said yeah that was capital records basically said no you're not really you know what's funny a lot of guys wrote about a lot of these white guys wrote about black women even from um 
brown eyed girls to some of these other early guys they ran they 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 were like secretly in love with black women right well look man i mean that's that's always been around okay uh and there's always you know there was a taboo to yeah. it for a lot i guess of so yeah so much you know now when you think of brown eyed girl okay the interesting thing on that is that was written by van morrison who's irish yeah and with a European background on that, that would not have been controversial in Europe. Okay. okay. Cause I because I think the Rolling Stones sang about a black girl also. Well, yeah, they, they oh, have both. a song called Sweet, Sweet, Black. Sweet Black Angel. Yeah. Off the Exile on Main Street album. But that song's more about uh, activist Angela Davis. Okay. But yeah, no, I mean, and look, I mean, Keith Richards in his book Life that he wrote in 2010 uh, talks about how on that first tour, okay, uh, the Rolling Stones of the United States, nobody knew that they were a white act. Wow. In, in the South, they didn't know. Wow. And they were performing down there, and there would be, you know, tons of, of black girls coming to see them, and they would just hook up with them. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it was like, you know, they go home with them and then, you know, the the mothers would cook them breakfast in bed and shit. Crazy shit. Okay. I know where Mike got his influence now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always had jungle fever. That's true. Um so let's go okay. back to that Jackson. The Jackson song didn't get released. Yeah, they told yeah, him not to. He wrote this he wrote this song called Irma Jackson and they, they didn't want to put it out as a single. And he, he was fighting with Capitol Records over it, but he didn't win that fight. Um, they ended up releasing the uh, the fighting side of me instead. Uh, there was also a track called "I Wonder If They Think of Me." All right, and that was in, it came out around I think seventy three or so, and uh, this was a song about an American POW in Vietnam, and it kind of became an anthem for what was called the silent majority during the Nixon era. Yeah. Okay, uh, Nixon in in seventy two had won by a landslide. I think he won 49 states and uh, you know, it was that, it was that, that word, that phrase, the silent majority that got him elected. Everybody thought that he would be wiped out, but it went the other way. Um, and, 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 you know, there was like a pushback and we see it today. Okay. Like, you know, as much as people protest shit, there's always <laughs> things the other way as well. Yeah, you know, definitely. Yep, yep. So now, um, even though his music was being praised in a lot of conservative American households, he was also starting to attract the attention of the American left. All right. Because what they saw in his music, songs like Okie from Muskogee and The Fighting Side of Me, it's this kind of like ironic levels to those songs. That you gotta wonder, like, is he is he being satirical, or what? All right. Now at that time, Merle had begun smoking weed. He was started smoking weed in his you know late thirties. That was the first time he ever did it in his life. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he got into it at that age, and uh, you know he he was kind of like a conservative American icon, but also. The, the far left liked them too because those songs seemed ironic to them. So they would play them on FM radio stations, hippie stations and stuff like that. They would play Okie from Muskogee. 
you know. Um, 1973, at the height of a, a major recession we were in in America, he released a Christmas song called If We Make It Through December. And that would be a big hit. That's a great song, of, too, if you can make yeah, it. Yeah, it is. It's a good Christmas song. He, it cemented his music, basically, as considered working class country. And, and I think he was. I think he spoke from a, a working class. But you know what? That song could easily be a country music, but that song could also be a top 40 hit, you know? I believe it was. I believe it, I believe it did very well in the charts. Um, through the 70s, he would still have a lot of country hits. That Christmas song would be his last crossover hit into pop. Yeah. But he would write songs like uh, Someday We'll Look Back, Always Wanting You, and The Roots of My Raising. And they were all number one hits through the 70s. Um, in 77, he would switch over to the MCA label. And he started writing more songs about kind of depression, alcoholism, and, and getting older. He was already in his 40s by that point. <clears throat> um, but this was a topic that he knew about. Okay, because by 1983, he had divorced his third wife, Leona, after five years of a bad marriage. And that split, basically, it, 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 the next 10 years of his life, he would be in an alcoholic spin, you know, and a, and a drug spin. Okay, he would be in a tailspin. And uh, it was, you know, it's kind of sad because I think he, he hurt himself physically with that a lot. Um, 1984, he would remake an old song called That's the Way Love Goes, and he'd get a Grammy for that as Best Male Country Vocal Performance. I think that was his only Grammy, I think. Uh, yeah, because he got a lot of different awards. Like He got the Kennedy Center honor. He got a, 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 a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Lifetime, right, right. He got okay. a BMI Icon Award. He got he got inducted to the Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame. He's in the Country right. Hall of Fame. He's in the Oklahoma right. uh, Hall of Fame. This guy got so many awards. It's crazy. I know. I know. He's very well respected, uh, I think, and he lasted long enough to get the respect, you know? Yeah. Um, you know what I was? I was surprised you didn't talk about his, uh, he did that episode, The Waltons. Yeah, well, he was well, through the through the seventies and and into the eighties. He would do some TV appearances. He was also on a show with Linda Carter, uh, Wonder Woman. Okay, oh, she yeah. had like <laughs> she had like a variety show. Uh, one day, you know, I think it was once, and he was actually on, and they did a duet of like, uh, "What's a little love between friends" or something like that. <laughs> okay, and I yeah, I mean, there's I've actually watched part of that variety show on YouTube and you know it's just Linda Carter hosting this it's amazing yeah <laughs> I can almost as good it's almost as good as the Brady Bunch variety show <laughs> now in the 90s late 80s early 90s he was experiencing a lot of financial problems and he was suffering from waning popularity people weren't really listening much to his music um, 1989, he had actually bought himself out of his record contract in order to release a song called Me and Crippled Soldiers Give a Damn. And, and it was about the fact that the Supreme Court that year had allowed flag burning. Yeah, that's crazy. As, as, as a uh, expression of freedom of speech, okay, of your First Amendment rights. And a lot of people were against that. 
um, and he wrote a song about it. Me and crippled soldiers give a damn. And the record company wouldn't put it out. So he bought himself out of his contract and he signed up with a, a different label and they actually put it out. He would quit CBS and sign with Curb Records just to release that. All right. Uh, through the 90s, he, he would tour. Uh, he had some health issues. Um, he was diagnosed with, uh, with lung cancer at one point. Okay. And he did have part of his lung removed. I mentioned that earlier. Um, in 2000, he would release a very simple produced, simply produced album called If I Could Only Fly. And it was on the anti-label. That was the name of the, of the record label. And it was done in the, in the vein of kind of the Johnny Cash records that Rick Rubin were doing. Yeah. Uh, and Johnny Cash was doing. Uh, just kind of like that, that first Cash record. Um, he's actually recorded in his living room with Rick Rubin. And that's it. Wow. And, and, and they did the same thing on a 2001 album called Roots Volume 1. And with Merle Haggard, okay, where he did, he had three originals. He did some Hank Williams, some Lefty Frizzell, a few other people. It's mostly covers, but it was recorded in his living room, no overdubs. And he had his original bandmates, the Strangers, with him. Wow. So it was like the, the 60s band that he had in his living room, recording very simply, acoustically, and, and whatnot. Uh, very good record. A uh, bit of a comeback for him. Uh, a few of these guys from the 60s were kind of coming back through the 90s and early 2000s with this kind of thing. You had Johnny Cash, uh, Merle. Also, Neil Diamond did a record with Rick Rubin. Uh, it wasn't as big a hit as the Cash one, but it actually is interesting to hear like Diamond like stripped down. You know, that's that's the idea. Wow. Now, in October of 2005, uh, he would release an anti-war song, okay, an anti-Iraq war song called America First. And, you know, he, he was against the war in Iraq. He said, we got too many problems here in the United States. Our infrastructure is crumbling, blah, blah, blah. Kind of sounds like Trump, right? I'm surprised Trump doesn't use that song as his um, theme music. Uh good point and i'm sure just by knowing merle haggard's personality he probably would have supported trump yep you know uh but he did die in 2016 so we'll never know you know if he supported him or not um by 2008 and 2007 uh well i should say in 2007 he actually recorded an album of bluegrass song yep called the bluegrass session that's a little bit different kind of country music bluegrass um 2008 he would tour extensively, but he had a bunch of shows he had to cancel because of failing health. Uh, 2010, he would he would make uh, I Am What I Am, all right? And he would do that song on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and it was a very good performance. Uh, by 2008, he had been diagnosed with lung cancer and, you know, been dealing with the that disease and other things, and... Uh, he would record and continue doing stuff, touring. Uh, but sadly, he would die from pneumonia on his birthday, April 6, 2016. Wow, what a career. Yeah, really. Uh, 
you know, and, and the outlaw country genre, like I said, you know, I think he embodies that. He embodies it. His politics were, were complicated, you know. Uh, he wrote controversial songs that would be considered right wing. He wrote songs that could be considered left wing. Uh, you know, something like the anti-Iraq song. Yeah, you want to hear something funny. Uh, he was also in the cover of Time, Time Magazine. Yes, I think he was. Yes, it was he just was. like, One holy time. shit, man. Yeah, how many people can say they've been on the cover of Dude, Time? but he had so many awards, man. You know, this guy, like, mm-hmm. he's like crazy awards, man. Like, everybody loved Merle Hagler. You know, he did, a lot of people, they have yeah. a mean word to say about him, but his awards is a... Uh, He's in so many places, like it's 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 crazy. And, and I'll be honest with you, his music is some of the best drinking music. You'll it ever is hear. great drinking music. All right, I mean, how many times you're in international, and Oki from Muskogee yeah. comes on, and you know three people are singing. You know what? They got those. They got some of his songs in Doc too. So you be in there. Yeah, oh, of course, oh, that's that, a great yeah, place to drink. Doc. You know what's amazing yep. about him with 38, 38 number one hit. And between yeah. albums and e- LP, and uh, EP, he had like sixty four releases. Sixty four, yeah, albums. almost like with everything, yeah. like with everything, like that's yeah. crazy. And that doesn't even festival. include live yeah. albums that probably came out of other shit. So when you look at him, he had quite a hell of a collection. Yeah, yeah, and you know, for the record, for, to be able to put out that much music in, I guess, fifty years, you would yeah. say. Okay, 50 years or 45 years or so, uh, you know, you have to be talented. You have to have the respect of the industry that people are willing to just keep letting you go into the studio and record maybe when you're not selling anymore. You know, I mean, he still was somewhat prolific at a time when he wasn't selling anything. And that's always that's always a sign of a real true. True I artist. always find it you weird that he kind of came. He didn't know who the Dixie Girls were, but he kind of defended them in that weird thing that they sang against Bush. Yeah, when they were shitting on George Bush. Yeah, which Bush. I thought was I, weird. So he was very like fickle. Like he, he just kind of was like, "Listen, they got they got a right to that." I guess opinion. so. Yeah, because he definitely he's and definitely about the First and Amendment. They, so you know, right, right. And and they, and they did. I remember when they did that. I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't agree with what you're saying too much, but you got a right to say yeah. it. So, you know, I don't care about stuff like that. You know, people always get angry. Oh, they said this. They let the let people say whatever the hell they want. That's that's America. And I you bet know? you he influenced a lot of the country music singers that came later on. You know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and and listen, okay. We talked about Gigi Allen in the last oh. episode. He liked Mel Haggard. Okay. And, it's funny. Uh, he also liked know, Hank Williams and Haggler. Hank Williams. Think about it. Mel Haggler, Gigi Adam, they all, they all, I guess, like Hank Williams. <laughs> the ultimate yeah. outlaw. Okay. And, and uh, another guy that was very influenced by Merle Haggard is Mike Ness from Social Discourse. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, Mike Ness years ago said, if you really want to consider yourself a punk rocker, you have to listen to country music. And I, I remember when he said that, it was at a time in my life where I didn't totally get that. And then I got it. 
you know, and I'm like, yeah, that's fucking true, you know. But it's funny, you know, Snoop Doggy Dog is a fucking big giant um, listener of Johnny Cash. He loved Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. He pretty oh, yeah. much goes on to say he was the original gangster. <laughs> gangster. Yeah, definitely. You know? I mean, it's all about attitude. And, and all those genres have that rebellious attitude, whether it's gangster rap or... Uh, or uh, punk rock or, or whatever, you know, country, outlaw country music. It all comes from that kind of like, fuck you, I'm going to yeah. do what I want kind of, you know. And Merle had that, uh, but he did it in a, in a smart way. I think he was a smart guy. Uh, he, did, he did what he, you know, he would record a song. Uh, he really didn't care. What, what anybody said about it. You know, he wrote a song about being in love yeah, with Yeah, think guy. about it, how he lived his life. He spent most of his childhood was in jail and going in and out, escaping to finally yeah. he actually lived the American dream to even getting a partner, a, a partner by a governor that became president. You know, once you get that, that's yeah, fucking crazy, right? man. Hey, he lived a great life and he, he died like he, he lived, you know what I mean, on his own terms. And that's all we can expect from life that's all we can ask for if we just can live on our own terms and die on our so own mike terms. let me ask you a question what will you pick if you have one song what is your favorite merle Haggard song oh god you know there's a song called sing me back home i mentioned it yeah okay uh that was an early hit for him uh god I mean, I could say Oki from Muskogee, but that's kind I love, of but I like I like Mama Tried yeah. is one of my favorite songs. Mama Tried, and and I'm gonna say Sing Me Back Home because so many people have covered that, and it's always just amazing, and 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 it's a great song about a guy in jail and everything, and and you know it's got similar themes. But yeah, I'm gonna say Sing Me Back Home. You're gonna you're gonna say Mama. Mama Tried. I love that song. I could be anywhere, and that yeah. song plays, and I love, love it, man. It, right? it, it just takes me. It's like cool. you know. Because you know what? At the end of the day, it was, it was his mama that as much as she tried, she if it wasn't for him, he would have never become the man that he was because he lost his father at a very young age. Right. She, and she had to put, you know, put the food on the table. So she became the mother. And and the even father. when he's seeing Hungry Eyes, which yeah. I guess probably there were nights that the mother didn't eat. Yeah, that right. That they went hungry. Yep. You know, so think about it. Yeah. So at the end of the day... You know, big ups to fucking uh, Merle Haggard, man. Merle Haggard. Yeah, I think this is the second country guy we did. I think we did Johnny Cash. Yeah, we did Johnny Cash. Uh, we, we we did Merle Haggard. Now I, I don't know. I mean, should we, should we do I think another the one? next one later on? Maybe in um August we might. Maybe Grand huh? Parsons. Maybe Grand Parsons. I'm also thinking Willie Nelson. <laughs> Willie Nelson. So there's okay. two guys there. <laughs> or even or even or even George oh, Jones. Oh, Jones is another one that we gotta talk about. That guy's another fucking lunatic. So oh, you yeah. know there's yeah, a few guys, you know, Grant Grand Parton, we can talk about Willie Nelson and uh George Jones. So you know what? The country genre for us is not over. Like the rock show, we you know, we like a lot of different yep. music. Yeah, well, you know, we, we we there's always one theme, I think, through all our shows. And that's that rebellious sentiment that's in all kinds of music, like I was just saying. Uh, you know, we try to, you know, I mean, I'll do shows about the obvious, but I also try to, you know, do different shows 
with with different bands and everybody learns a little something, you know. That's, it's that's going important. to be interesting. Our that's next show is about Guns N' Roses. They were a band that pretty much when everybody was listening to dance music, they came out with this fucking heavy metal that everybody's like, motherfucker, fuck this dance shit. We gonna we want to go back to yeah. heavy metal. We're gonna talk about the the making of the album Appetite for Destruction. That should that be a happen. good. Uh, I think that would be a good episode. Uh, you know, twelve songs. And I think we're. I and, and I'll. I think I'll mention it yeah. if it's okay. I'm pretty sure that uh, our other buddy in the Lumped Up Universe, Freak John, is gonna be on that show giving his input because he's a yeah. big Guns N' Roses fan. And uh, we'll we'll just get to that whole bottom of of what went. And I can out. tell you, I was in Tower Record for the midnight sale of this album because MTV pumped it up. <laughs> oh yeah, I do remember that? And I had seen them play an acoustic show at CBGB's uh, around that time yeah, as but well. Mike, I'll never forget. I, I'll tell the story. Be in our line. I got the record and the fucking uh, cassette player. Then I had a journey home that you would never forget. I walk all the way from. From Tower Record to 37th Street and 9th Avenue Health wow. Kitchen at, at midnight. <laughs> oh my God! Back in '88, <laughs> yeah. right? Holy shit! You want to talk about? Yeah, you, you, you were asking for it. <laughs> did you? Did you have to give up anything? Oh, I made it made home, but it was me and my boy. And I remember us walking and walking around. And back then, there wasn't too many 24-hour stores open, man. <laughs> Right, right. It would be deserved. Yeah, it was crazy, there. man. I, I'll never forget that. Yeah, yeah. So, Mike, right, thank you for another great episode. This is episode 69 of the Rock Show. And um, Guns N' Roses will be 70s. So, um, to everybody out there, have a great um day. And remember, don't get drunk, get, get lumped drunk, up. Get lumped up. Take care.